Amen. Again, can I welcome you if you're a visitor here? Uh, you'll notice that we have a bookstall. Uh, we us- usually have this the first Sunday of each month, and we have a book of the month. There are a lot of other books there as well. But our book of the month this month is That Hideous Strength, How the West Was Lost by Melvin Tinker. Melvin is an Anglican clergyman, I think from York. Um, this is a short book, but it is a brilliant description of what's going on in our culture and the gospel's uh, answer to that. So highly recommended, and I believe that we have it for six pounds. And also for those of you who are cultured and get the Tully, otherwise known as the Evening Telegraph, uh, if you get it tomorrow, there will be an article, um, which I'm assured is positive, uh, on myself and St. Peter's and also Jim Tarrant from uh, Central. And the reason I mention that is, when you get stuff like that in the secular press, it's always good to use it as an opportunity to share the gospel even and to encourage people to come and hear the gospel because that's what the church is for. And we are going to look at that especially this morning. We're in Romans chapter 10 and we will be at verse 5. But let me read just from the beginning Verse 1, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is they may be saved. For I can testify about them, they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the accumulation of the law, the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And then we come into Verse 5, which we'll look at first of all, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. Now, what we're looking at is, in technical terms, what is called justification by faith alone. And that has been described as the, the doctrine by which a church falls or stands what does it mean? It means being put right with God. And how are we made right with God? How do we come into a relationship with God through faith alone? I think that's particularly important in today's culture, especially today's Christian culture. I would suggest to you that about nine out of ten services that I hear on the radio, and often um, services I go to, And it doesn't matter whether they're more traditional or consider themselves to be more contemporary, that it's almost a moralism. It's a view that if someone holds to a moral position, they are a Christian. So you get someone like Jordan Peterson, the controversial Canadian psychologist, and because he says a lot of things that are true, people go, oh, yeah, that's, oh, well, he's a Christian. But he's not a Christian. Or you get people in, in different ways, well, well, they sound really good, that they must be a Christian, our politicians. Well, they've got a moral position, so they are a Christian. No, they're not. And I think knowing what a Christian is and how you become a Christian is just so essential. Now, remember, uh, we've been looking through this book and uh, the last chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, Paul is dealing with the Jews because there was a a belief that some had that just by being Jewish, 
they were special and they were God's people and they were saved. And Paul is saying, oh, no, 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 wait a minute. Not all are, are Abraham who are of Abraham. And he's talking about how we come to know God. And it's the same for Jew and for, for Gentile. Now, I think also what Paul is doing here is he's summarizing what's happened in the previous chapters. He's also telling us what we need, not what we think we need. So you hear a phrase like justification by faith is so important. You say, well, that's not really what I need. I need something that's going to uh, help me in my life. I need something that's going to help me tomorrow. I need something that's going to make me feel better. I need something that's going to encourage me and cheer me and so on. And what Paul does is he gives us what is essential for us. It's a bit like when you go to the doctor and because you've been on the internet, you know what's wrong. So you go to the doctor and you tell the doctor, I know what I need. I need this, this, and this. Please sign the prescription. A bad doctor will do that for you. A good doctor will examine you and say, actually, this is what you need. And that's what's happening here. So Paul describes one way of becoming right with God, and that is righteousness that is by the law. That's what it says in verse 5. He's citing Moses. He's citing Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. And it's just simple. If you do these things, you live. You live by them. This was the religion of the Jews of Paul's day. It was the religion preached by many so-called Christian churches today. Do this. Give to the poor. Read the Bible. Be nice. Don't swear. Don't use pornography. Pray. A lot of different things. Just do this, do this, do this, and you will live. It's a natural religion. But here's the problem. The person who does these things will live by them, but nobody does these things. Alec Motier says this, taken on its own terms, severed from the undergirding promise of God, the law of Moses offers the possibility of righteousness and life only if it is truly done. By focusing so narrowly on the Mosaic law, the Jews have put themselves in the position of being able to find life and salvation only by doing it. And that is an impossible task. And that's what Paul, if you were to go back and read Romans chapter 3, that's what Paul has said in Romans chapter 3, that nobody can keep the law. Now, this is so counterintuitive to us because you come to church and you want to hear, if I do this, if I do this, if I do this, then I'll be fine. And the message is absolute. You can't. No matter how good you are or how good you think you are, you cannot do it. And it is so hard for us to get that because we... we we will accept, well, yes, God is greater, and we will accept that um, Jesus died on the cross. We'll accept many, many different things. We can accept the resurrection and so on. But at the end of the day, we still say, I can do something to help save myself. I can work with, with God on this one. And it's really only when you get to a position where you realize you can't, you can't do it, that you begin to grasp what the gospel is. Now, we'll come on to that in just a moment, but let me say something here as a kind of an aside, but it's a really important aside for those of us who are Christians. If you're here and you think that you have committed a sin, 
or done something that you perceive as being so bad that it means either you're not a Christian at all or that you lose your faith, you've lost your faith, then you don't understand the gospel. Because the gospel is not being justified by works. It's being justified by faith. Now, Paul has already spoken about how when you are made right with God by faith, that will be seen in your life. And he'll go on to speak about that in 12, 13, 14, and 15. It's not saying you can do whatever you want and then it doesn't matter. But it is saying this, that if you grasp the gospel and you understand the gospel, there's nobody who's here. And this, this is really hard because it goes against what you feel. It's a rational position that goes against what you feel because you feel condemned, you feel accused, you feel as though you've let God down because you have let God down and because your sin would condemn you. And there are Christians who, as Christians, have done some horrible things. And you think, that's it. I'm finished. I'm done. God could never, ever accept me. Well, you know, the biggest problem you have is that you're not grasping the gospel. I do love more and more as I go on in life the idea that we should preach the gospel to ourselves as Christians every day, every week. Galatians 3.10 says this, For all who rely on the works of the Lord under a curse, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On, it, on the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree or on a pole. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. So there's another thing. Just let me just a little simple application for you. If you may be the opposite of the person who's thinking, I'm condemned because I've done such bad things. But if you are thinking, do you know this? I'm not perfect, but I don't murder. I don't watch pornography. I don't commit adultery. I don't swear, at least not big swears. Uh, I don't steal, at least not big things. You know, I, 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 I don't fight people. I come to church. I do my best. I try to be kind. I try to be good. Isn't that enough? And God says, no, no, it's not. It's not enough because, look, you're relying on the works of the law and you're, you're under a curse. Do you know this? The religious person who comes to church and doesn't grasp the gospel is as much under a curse, maybe even worse actually, than the, the alcoholic or the drug addict. You'd be absolutely horrified at that. I remember saying that to one lady uh, one time when I was young and far less subtle than I am today, and, and she was so angry. She was raging. Are you saying I'm as bad as these teenagers? And I hadn't learned my lesson about when you quit while you're ahead. So I said, no, I'm saying you're worse. Well, that, she was, to talk about not being violent, she was all ready to handbag me completely uh, because she was absolutely horrified at this idea. How could she possibly be worse? 
than the scum who poured out of the pub on a Friday night because she was relying on herself and her own works. No. The righteousness that is by law, you can't do it. So let's go on to read the next verses, verse 6. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning the faith that we proclaim. The righteousness that is by faith, says Paul, is near. Now, what, you can see what he's doing. He's doing a direct contrast. He's saying, the righteousness that is by law, you think, if I could do this, and if I could do that, and if I could do that, then I'd make it. But the trouble is, you're grasping at something that's as far away as the moon. You cannot make it. You cannot reach it. It is absolutely impossible to get that righteousness through your own works. But the righteousness that is by faith, says Paul, is right near you. It's here. That's what he's saying to them. It's here. It's accessible. Well, how? What he does is he quotes Moses to defeat Moses. That's what it looks like. Uh, he quotes Deuteronomy 13:14 to counter Leviticus 18:5. except he, he's not really countering. They're not being set up as opposites. It's, some people think that Paul is misinterpreting Moses. I don't think he is. All he's doing here is he's saying, you know, this is what the Mosaic law says to you. If you can do these things, you'll live by them. You can't. And he then goes on to say, the Mosaic law says, it's near you. It's close. And Paul is quoting that to speak about Christ. The teaching about Christ is near. It's the key difference between doing the law and believing the gospel. And I think one of the important things to grasp and to understand what Paul is doing is that all of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. Everything that we are commanded to do is done by Christ. Everything comes from Christ. It's not your works, working out your own righteousness through your own good deeds, or, nor is it your intelligence. There's a danger here, you see. What some people do is they think, well, if I could work this out. Or they may be a bit more mystical, and they'll say something like, if only we could feel it. Now, for those of you who were here when Alistair McIntosh and myself had that discussion, it's now online, so you can uh, see it on YouTube and, and, and Vimeo and, uh, and so on. Um, I love Alistair, but one of the things that Alistair keeps saying about it is, you feel, you feel, you feel, you search, you feel, and you're all searching. And then at that particular debate, there was a man who came up, and he was so angry. Not Alistair. Alistair was lovely. But this, this man came up. He was a university lecturer, and he was, how can you possibly say what you said? Your epistemology is all wrong, which is a great line to be told by someone, an insult many of you will not have received. And he said, I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, how can you say that you know you can't say that you know Jesus. You can feel it. You can't know. And I said, he said to me, you can't say that you know anything, really. And I said to him, well, that's your job stuff then, isn't it? Because you're meant to be a university lecturer, teaching knowledge, teaching things. You don't go by how you feel. Oh, but that's science and so on. But faith, you can't know. Well, Paul is saying here, you can know. 
You can know, and it's not just by your searching and your finding out and your investigating. You don't work out God. Who by searching can find out the Almighty? He's saying that knowledge, that experience, those works, that righteousness have all been provided in Christ. And Christ is not remote. You don't need to have a mystical experience or go through another mediator or a priest. You don't need to go to a church where there's a man who stands up at the front and he says, if you come to him, then he will take you to God. You don't need to do that. That's one of the great problems, I think, with much of Roman Catholic teaching, that there's this idea that God is so distant from us that we need a mediator, and even Jesus, that we need Mary you know, go talk to Mary, and then Mary will talk to her son, and then the son will talk to the father. And it gets worse than that. Go talk to the saints who've been really good people, and then the saints will talk to Mary, and then Mary will, and it just goes on forever. You can go straight to God through Jesus. Let me add something else, though, as well. You don't need to know lots of doctrine. People say, okay, I'm thinking about becoming a Christian, so I'm going to do this course. Now, I like things like Christianity Explored and so on, but you can't do a course to become a Christian. It's not like doing an exam. It's not like reaching a certain point where you say, well, I've, I've learned this much doctrine. You don't actually have to know lots of doctrine to become a Christian. There were lots of things that I learned when reading the Bible after I became a believer that I didn't know that I, I knew them. I just believed what was said in the Bible and just you learn and you learn and you learn as you go on. But you don't need to get to a certain standard before you get accepted. It's not like a university entrance exam where you need, you know, five A's to get into medicine or one C to get into sociology or something uh, along those lines. It's not, you don't need, though, you know, it's in Christianity, it's not that that you have to get to a certain level of understanding doctrine. It's all about Jesus Christ. And he's saying the word is near you, the word is it's, it's everything to do with Jesus. Now, a lot of what I hear in so-called Christian teaching has Christ as an incidental and sometimes leaves Christ out. I was in a conservative evangelical church not so long ago and the sermon said almost nothing about Jesus. Well, how was it different from Judaism? It said nothing about Jesus. I think people who leave Jesus out are people who very often, I mean, they'll say they don't leave Jesus out. They'll say they're following the spirit of Christ and so on. But in reality, they leave Jesus out. They're the ones who say, well, Muslims and Christians worship the same God. No, we don't. I had the privilege of speaking at one of the mosques here one time, and afterwards these young men came up to me because it was a, bit, it was a debate with various other people, and thankfully there was a pagan and a, a Baha'i there, and so uh, the Muslims were totally on side with me when I was arguing with the pagan and the Baha'i. And they came up to me afterwards and they, and they said, David, you believe in God. You believe in God the Creator. There's so many things that you said that we could agree with. If it wasn't for Jesus, you would be a Muslim. So I said, thank God for Jesus, <laughs> you know, because that's, that is the difference. That is the distinction. You know, I long for 
Muslims to come to know Jesus because there's many Muslims I've met and known. They're just, they're just wonderful people and you want them to know Jesus and to come out from that religion of fear and into the glorious light of Christ. Michael Ramsden of uh, the Oxford Center for Christian Ministry, said, I, it's just, he has a way sometimes of putting things. And uh, I just remembered this phrase. It was a very memorable phrase. He says, if you leave Christ out of Christian all you've got left is Ian, and Ian won't save you, um, which is, is true. So, let's go on to verses 9 and 10. The righteous by faith that is by faith is near, but the righteousness that is by faith is clear. If you declare with your mouth or confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. The righteousness that is by faith is clear. We complicate things and we don't need to. We have a a shorter catechism and question 86 says this, what is faith in Jesus Christ? I think it's a great answer. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. And Paul explains it here with two things. Declaring and confessing with our mouth and believing with our heart. First of all, declaring, confessing with your mouth. What? Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? He's God. That's it. All the fullness of God is in him. We could quote Colossians. We could quote all of Paul's letters. We could quote the Gospels. They tell us that Jesus is God. Not our own made up Jesus. Again, in so many churches, people confuse the issue by turning Jesus into a carbon copy of them, of what they want him to be. They just make him unreal. Sometimes we have a lot to unlearn. And that, you can be in a Christian church and you could have been taught things about Jesus that are wrong. And there's a lot of unlearning that we need to do. But we confess that Jesus is Lord. And, and how do we confess that? Not by wearing a badge or special dress or a Jesus t-shirt or even having a fish sticker on your car. Not that that's wrong. But wearing the badge doesn't make you a Christian. How do we confess Christ? We proclaim Christ. We don't parade our faith Sometimes we are proclaiming ourselves, I think. Sometimes we're proclaiming Christianity. When uh, Christopher Hitchens wrote a book, God is Not Great, a response that was written to it was, why Christianity is great. It was the wrong response. It's not Christianity that's great. It's Christ who's great. How do we profess Christ? By what the Bible calls our conversation. That means not just the way that we speak, but our whole way of life. There are lots of different things you can say about that. One is by belonging to his people. When you come uh, and worship here, you're professing your faith in Jesus Christ. You may, become, you may come as a, as a seeker, as someone who's seeking uh, to find out and to know more. But as a Christian, when you come, when you sit at the Lord's table, you're saying, these are my people, this is where I belong. We confess Christ in baptism. We confess Christ by telling others. We confess Christ by not being ashamed of him. 
when people mock and abuse, when people say, are you a Christian? You say, yes, I am. I'm one of these despised people. Now, there's a problem here with this confessing of Christ because we, like we do so often, people take these things and turn them into formulas. And here, one of the difficulties has been that sometimes people have taken this, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you're saved, they turn it into a formula. So just say Jesus is Lord, like a, like a magic mantra. Just say it. And that's you, a Christian. That's not what this is saying. And nor is it saying that Christianity is just an intellectual thing. So... Uh, some of my Catholic friends, and it's not true of all of, of my Catholic friends, but some of them, they'll say, I'm Christian, I'm Catholic, because, and when I ask them what they believe and what they feel and what they understand, they just say what the church teaches. And that, that makes them a Christian. No, it doesn't. But there's a, a, a Protestant version of that, and actually, um, when you become a free church minister, you swear this vow about having nothing to do with various heresies. One of them is Socinianism, and another one is Sandemanianism. What is that? What is Sandemanianism? That sounds fun, Sandemanianism. It's, it's from Dundee. It's a heresy that's from Dundee. Uh, it's an old one. There was a man called John Glass. And if you go down into the center of town and uh, there's the, uh, the church that's nearest the railway station, that was the, the Glassite church. And uh, John Glass' daughter married a man called Robert Sandeman. And they taught, and it was very popular, they had a congregation of over a thousand at the end of the 18th century. And they taught that it's just your intellectual assent that makes you a Christian. Didn't matter what you felt, didn't matter what was in your heart, didn't matter if your life never changed. Simple intellectual assent saves you. But no, it doesn't. It's one thing to accept a doctrine in your mind. It's another to have a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not just intellectual assent. And that's why Paul says, you believe in your heart. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. The heart in the Bible is always the whole of the inner being. It's not just the bit that, you know, you put in a St. Valentine's Day card. It's, it's the whole of the inner person. And the Bible keeps emphasizing that. So, I mean, I don't have time, but if I did, we'd talk about Pentecost. They were pricked in their heart. Or the parable of the sower, the seed that was sown in the heart. Or Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch when he wanted to be baptized. If you believe with all your heart, you may. The heart is really important. It's not just intellectual assent. And that's an enormous problem, by the way, for those who do evangelism. If you think that you can just go, tick this box, tick this box, agree with this doctrine, agree with this doctrine, that's okay, you're a Christian. Even if you don't feel like one, you're a Christian. That is not a biblical emphasis. Neither is, you know, an emphasis solely on feeling. But he says, you know, you confess with your mouth, but you believe in your heart. And here, here again is another problem that often exists with those of us who like doing what we call apologetics. We believe it when non-Christians say to us, if only you prove the Bible, I would believe. If there was enough proof, I would believe. Here's the thing. No. If you're not a Christian here and you're saying, if you just gave me enough proof, I would believe. I'm sorry, you don't know yourself. No, you wouldn't you would find a way to disbelieve. The human mind is absolutely brilliant at finding ways to disbelieve. 
It's not just an intellectual problem. It's a matter of the heart. So Romans 1 talks about the wrath of God being poured out because human beings, although they knew God, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Romans 8, the carnal mind or the natural mind is enmity against God. Men love darkness rather than light. The problem, the primary reason that people do not believe is not because there's not enough evidence and it's not because they intellectually have said this isn't sufficient. These may be factors, but that's not the primary reason. The primary reason is people are dead in sins and trespasses, people hate God, and they don't want there to be a God. So um, we were talking, when we came in about, uh, a couple of us were talking about an experience that we had one time with John Ellis down at, um, when there was a debate at the university with the Atheist Society, and at the end of it, John was absolutely marvelous. He spoke really, really well. Um, in intellectual terms, wiped the floor with his opponent. And at the end, the president of the Atheist Society stood up and shouted, I don't care what you've said. Even if you could prove God, I wouldn't worship him. And that was all that we'd been saying. You won't touch God. It's not to do with proof. Now, I'm not decrying intellectual questions. I'm not saying these things are not important, but I'm saying they are not the absolute. They are not the primary reason. Ephesians 4.20, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him with accordance with the truth that is in Christ. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Faith does begin in the mind, but it's ultimately in the heart. It's not a cold calculation. It's not a challenge. It's not a here's a profit, here's a loss kind of thing. It's a conviction. It's a repentance. It's when you're coming to church and you've been hearing God's word and it's never affected you, and then all of a sudden it begins to hit home. What do we believe in the heart? He says that. You believe that God raised him from the dead. The apostles were primarily witnesses to the resurrection. Romans 1, he proved with power by his resurrection from the dead to be the son of God. It shows who Jesus is. It shows that the devil has been defeated. It guarantees our own resurrection. It shows that Christ is still alive and reigns on the throne in heaven. It guarantees his coming again. It guarantees the final judgment. It shows that he is the head of the church. It's the essence of the Christian gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was raised from the dead. If you do not believe these things, you are not a Christian. And you believe them in your heart. Now, two dangers. Some say, I need to think about this more. This is all too simple. The cross and the resurrection, what? You're just saying, I just have to confess and I have to believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Don't I have to understand a lot more than that? No. No, you don't. And it's not too simple, by the way. I've just started reading um, John Owen's The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. and My head hurts. And if it wasn't for Sinclair, I'd give up. But I know I, I have to see it through. And I, I, it's, there's just so much. And I realize that even what he's doing is scratching the surface, scratching it deeper than most of us do. People go, oh, I'm just a simple person. I'm not interested in doctrine. Really? You're not interested in Christ? You never have any questions. How can you be a Christian? 
if you're not interested in Christ and if you don't have any questions. But there's an opposite extreme almost where people say, you know, I need to think some more. Some will say that. And the other extreme, of course, is that we don't want to think about it. Lloyd-Jones says this, I know of nothing more dangerous than the attitude which says, it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you somehow believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need not bother about the doctrine or the theology or the understanding of it all. As long as you feel something and you want to be a Christian and live a good life and help others, then all is well. No, it's not. You need to know Christ, which is why we come and hear God's Word. It's why, do you know, sometimes new Christians get it better than older Christians. Let me explain what I mean. I remember in, uh, up in Brora, a woman was converted on the Sunday, and on the Thursday, she was at the prayer meeting. I said to her, what are you doing in the prayer meeting? And she said, David, how could I go a whole week without hearing about Jesus? See, we've got to, oh, I'll go to the prayer meeting because that's my duty. It's not, how could I go a whole week without hearing about Jesus or without meeting with his people? We don't need, Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, we don't need a full and deep understanding of the whole of doctrine. We grow in grace, we study, but we are not saved by our understanding. We are saved by God in Christ and the understanding follows. But if we are saved, we will want to know. Confession and belief then go together. They go together. You confess with your mouth, you believe in your heart. Maybe um, this will help some of you. Um, I became a Christian very reluctantly because I've been arguing against it. And then I remember when I became a Christian and I was in one way delighted, in another way really annoyed because I didn't like Christians and I didn't want to be with Christians. And so I thought, okay, I believe in Jesus and I'm gonna be one of, like one of these people in Russia when it was a communist state and they, uh, you know, they're secret Christians. I'm gonna be a secret Christian. So I'll believe in Jesus and I'll read the Bible. And I used to read it secretly under the covers. Uh, and my, I shared a room with my brothers. Uh, goodness knows what they thought I was reading. But I, you know, just would do that. And I just thought, I'll keep it to myself. I'll keep it to myself. I'm going to follow Jesus secretly. It's impossible. It was absolutely impossible. Because one day I was asked about it. And how could I deny Jesus Christ? And I remember one teacher saying to me, David, you almost had me convinced you were a Christian. And I said to him, I am, sir. And I'll never deny it. You confess Jesus. We need to do that. The two things come together. Leads to justification, he says, leads to salvation. The two words, I think, mean the same thing. They're a parallelism. They're just two different ways of, of, of saying the same thing. Let me just say something. I realize time is going pretty quickly, but I do want to say something about assurance. How do you know? I, I don't often do this, but I would recommend the Westminster Confession of Faith um, on assurance, which I think is brilliant, especially chapter 18. And let me just give you a, my own wee translation of it. This infallible assurance, the, the, the knowledge, the certainty that you belong to Jesus, does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before they have it. You see what's being said? You can be a Christian without being assured that you are a Christian. That is true. Yet, 
Being enabled by the Spirit to the things which are freely given them of God, we may, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of ordinary means, get such assurance. See, there's a tradition in the free church, particularly in some areas of the highlands, that you become a Christian by believing in Jesus, but you don't know you're a Christian until you get a text, until you get a word, until you get something that is specifically given by the Holy Spirit for you. Now, that has happened. But does it have to happen in order for you to know you're a Christian? No. The confession is right in saying it's just the ordinary means. You come, you hear God's Word, you realize you believe it, you realize what's going on. Your assurance can be shaken, it can be diminished, it can be interrupted. The confession goes on to say through special sin and negligence and so on, but the assurance is, is there. I know whom I have believed because it's Jesus. I don't trust myself. I don't trust my works. I don't trust my intellect. I don't trust my experience. I trust Jesus. And let's just finish by looking at verses 11 to 13. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's the difference between works religion and faith in Christ? Very simple. Works religion is only for some people. Faith in Christ is for everybody. There's no difference, no favoritism between Jew and Gentile. God has already done what needs to be done to secure righteousness. All that people are required to do is believe. We trust in Christ. We call on Christ. We call on his name. That's what Paul says. He quotes Isaiah 28, 16, which he's already quoted in chapter 9, verse 33. Incidentally, note that he, that text which speaks of God he applies to Jesus, again, indicating that Jesus is God. But he, he, he says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, quoting again the Old Testament, Joel 2, 32. What is it to call on the name of the Lord? It's to appeal to him on the basis of who he is and what he has done. Jesus Christ, incarnate, God born as a human being, Jesus Christ crucified, Jesus Christ resurrected, Jesus Christ reigning as Lord, Jesus Christ returning again. What Paul is saying, this is the gospel, is it's all about Jesus and it's not Jesus plus, or as Lloyd-Jones puts it, Jesus and company. It's not Jesus and company. There's a, um, a men's suit place in Dundee that's just closed, Cooper and McKenzie and company. It's just closed, it's finished. Quite sad, really, even though I don't wear a suit, but quite sad. It's not Jesus and company, and yet the church always seems to do that. I heard a man on the church say, we are a church governed by this and this and this and this, and Christ wasn't mentioned. No, 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 it's about Jesus. There is no Jesus plus, and the gospel is to make Jesus known. There's only one gospel there are not several Gospels in different dispensations, and we'll come on to this in future weeks, but some Christians and some of you here, you may have been taught that there are different dispensations, and that now we have, the, my own family, the background was very much, we have different dispensations, and you have different Gospels for the different dispensations, and the whole message that Paul is saying is, no, 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 that's not true. 
There's only one gospel for us all, one gospel for the Jews, one gospel for the Gentiles, one gospel for rich and poor, one gospel for us all. And therefore, he urges us to call on the name of the Lord, combining faith in the heart and confession with the mouth. By the way, why do we call? We call because we realize we're helpless, because we're in trouble, because we're hopeless and helpless, and because we don't know. Do you know Saul of Tarsus, before he became Paul, he always knew what to do. He always knew what was right. He had an answer for everything. And then when he met Jesus, he didn't know what to do. Lord, what will I do? What do you want me to do? For the first time in his life, he didn't know what to do. And that's the wonderful thing about being a Christian. You don't know what to do, but Jesus does, and you trust Jesus. What must I do to be saved? I I can't leave without just commenting on this word. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. The word is, he's rich. The Lord is rich. I, for me, this is just, do you know that it's so wonderful because we have such a poor view of God. You sit there in your sin and you think, that's it, I'm finished, I'm done. How can God save me? Or how can, I'm too stupid. I'm too stupid. I can't understand all this stuff. That guy up there, he used words. I have not a clue what they mean. How am I ever going to get it? Or I'm too clever. You know, just a whole bunch of stuff that we have in our heads that stop us because we have such a low view of God. But he's rich. Listen to what Lloyd-Jones says and then Luther and then I'll be done. He is so rich, says Lloyd-Jones, that he can take any pauper who may like to come. He can take them all. No ignorance is too profound. No sin is too great. No one has committed too great a number of sins. Or Luther, God is rich when he gives. We are poor when we pray. Think about that. Oh, Lord, I'm so great. I'm so good. I'm just fantastic. What's happened? Lord, I just want to thank you for me. No, 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 no. I'm weak and I'm poor, and God is rich, says Luther. He's mighty when he grants us our petitions. We are timid and weak when we ask. We do not pray for as much as he can and will give, for we do not pray according to his ability to give, but far short of his ability according to our weakness. But he can only give according to his might. Therefore, he always gives more than we ask for. In the words of the old hymn, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. See, there's not one of you here as a Christian with all the needs that you have that can't go to God. And that God is so rich, so gracious, and so good that he gives abundantly more than you can ever ask or conceive. And as a non-Christian, how do you become one? You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You're saved. Why? Because he'll never turn away anyone who comes to him. He will never deny us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Religion says, go do this, 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 and maybe you'll make it. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. The gospel says, it's not up there, it's not down there. It's here, the word, the word. 
The word of Christ is here. Accept it, believe it. Accept Christ, believe him. And that's it. You're a believer. Don't let your pride or your sin or your ignorance or your superiority or your status in life or anything keep you from coming to Jesus. Is it really that simple? Yes, it is. It's really that simple. It's too wonderful almost to believe. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Bless it to us. Enable us to apply it and enable us to understand these are simple truths, yet profound. These are truths that some of us may have heard today for the first time, and it knocks us over. And some of us have heard for the 10,000th time, and it still knocks us over. We bless you, Lord, for the gospel, for the good news that we can't save ourselves. That we believe, we believe, Lord, that you rose from the dead, and we confess that you are Lord. In your name, amen. Let's finish by singing Amazing Grace. My chains fell off. You get the grace, your chains fall off. Amazing Grace has sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let's stand and sing this to God's praise. Now to, his, to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and this proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might believe and obey him to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Tea and coffee is now served. <laughs>